Not to be too mystical, but the person I really wrote it for was Danny, who's the protagonist, who's a person who doesn't exist. But she feels so real for me, and once I had a first draft, she became quite real as a sort of driving force, as a kind of sentimental centre of it. Characters, in a way, they, they, they just exist on their own, and you as the author, you can throw incident at them, and you can assume that it will shape them in certain ways, but I think until you write it, you don't entirely know. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting even better acquainted with Lucy. (laughs) Hello, Lucy. Hello. And we're recording at the National Theatre in a relatively quiet place. Uh, but we're in the National Theatre, so anything could happen. Sound could change at any moment. Uh, listeners can get excited by the background sound if they want to. So the first question I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Interesting. Um, so now I know you through podcasting, through the Edinburgh Festival, um, and seeing your shows through Stand Up Tragedy, and a little bit through doing Getting Better Acquainted four years ago. Right. That's right. I mean, we, we know each other in so many ways at this point. I mean, you were like one of my favourite acts to book for Stand Up Tragedy. I even gave you the hosting yeah. option at a certain point. You did some hosting for Stand Up Tragedy. You've, I've seen all your shows as well. Like, you've mentioned yeah. my shows, but I've seen your shows and like, been so into them. Uh, like the first one, Lullabies to Make Children Cry, yeah. I really loved. And then, then there was the Mermaid one as well, which was yeah. great too. You've now as well been in my like drama you've, yeah, you yeah I was in, you're the, in family, the family tree in the family tree yeah which um we've been doing for three years now right right well we've recorded we've just like literally before we did before we were recording this conversation we recorded your last moments on the show final words which won't come out till sort of somewhere in 2019 so uh, <laughs> at the moment there's two seasons out and uh, yeah you, you you do lots of exciting things and it's such a hard show to talk about without spoiling yeah it's almost impossible to even <laughs> even describe the premise to people <laughs> like right. I normally do a bit of screening process where I'm like so what's your stance on spoilers and then I kind of like do a triage and I'm like do you like this do you like this do you like magical realism how right. do you feel about soft sci-fi and then I try and make a decision about whether or not they're going to get into it right. and if I think they're not I just tell them what it's about um, right. but sometimes I'm like I think you should listen to the podcast right if somebody really is going to love it then you, you in a I way you, like you can't tell them anything yeah, yeah, about yeah. it which is a weird exactly. weird way around if you meet someone you're like they're never going to like this show you can literally tell them everything yeah yeah I know um, yeah and some people I think there's one or, there's one or two people who listen to all of it um, but it's so it's so funny um, podcasting compared to being on stage and also writing compared to being on stage because you can't see your audience right and you just don't know whereas if you go to a gig it's obvious well it's weird because you I know, you do know I mean I know the stats for it so I know oh, how many people listen you know to each a episode lot more than I, so yeah. I know that at least a thousand people have listened all the way through right wow. which is quite good right like when you think about an audience it's a lot of content right when we're doing live shows. Yeah. Like, you don't have that many... You don't have a 1,000 people in the audience. No. Um, where, you know, whereas... Or even a whole Edinburgh run. Right, exactly. You probably... <laughs> exactly. Right? Like, you'd be lucky to get a 1,000 people. Right. Maybe we, Maybe both of us have had a 1,000 people over Edinburgh on free fringe. When I was at Underbelly, I definitely didn't. Right. Um, 
No, I mean, I, I think that's right. I think I, I, I can't think of a time like not in certainly like definitely not in an individual moment. I've never had a thousand people in an audience, mm. but I think probably in any run that I've ever had, I've probably not had that. Yeah, maybe when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I was the, a member of the children's choir in Joseph is Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, <laughs> three years running when I was a child, um, just for like one week. They do local children's choirs, uh, so I was the whole one. Right. And I think whole new theatre might be approaching... Yeah, I think I, that remains my biggest ever audience. I think you're right. For actually, sure. now I'm thinking about it. Like I'm thinking, yeah, like youth choir, which I well, I also I was in South, was it Cardiff and South Glamorgan County youth choir? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I yeah. probably had some. I was in Yorkshire big, youth choir. Yeah, right. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Two, two ex choir people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, the coolest people. Yeah, around. always, always the most popular <laughs> in the sixth form. <laughs> So the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? So I still have my day job that I did last time we spoke, which is a work in marketing for a prison yoga charity. Um, I've been promoted and I'm now communications manager for that charity. And I am a writer, which I can right. say much more confidently than last time. Yeah, you can say like the most confidently that writers can ever be about being writers. Yeah, yeah. You are at that point. I'm genuinely a writer now. Yeah. Um, this is my debut year as a novelist yes yes <laughs> so exciting <laughs> my imprint is also a new imprint and it is our imprint wide launch party tonight wow so it's my imprint's birthday so that's why you're dressed that's, that's as why you were i'm saying correct. earlier on you're dressed in a, in a very good uh, stylish dress yes i'm dressed in a stylish dress so i will try and illustrate my sartorial choices for the podcast so <laughs> i am dressed in a plunging black maxi dress because i'm going to a book party um but also i had um a meeting about doing some teaching work earlier today which went really really well i was really excited about but is less of the plunging v-neck right. and so i'm also wearing a vintage silk scarf <laughs> hopefully winningly uh, knotted around my boobs right to conceal them slightly right so that you, yeah you, you are you are making them less uh, less in your face less I of guess. a focus less of a focus that's a better um, way of saying but it but as soon as it's 5pm sure. and there's some Prosecco I've decided it's fine yeah that <laughs> is I mean absolutely where else should like it's the most appropriate to be as happy and comfortable and do yeah. whatever you want yeah because uh, it's, it's you know it's, it's your time which yeah. is so exciting so exciting it's I mean, wildly exciting it's exciting, like from like from the point of view of someone who's you know who writes, and you know both me and my partner write, uh, and we and you're in our show, and it's so exciting to kind of live vicariously through <laughs> your kind of your your experiences. Although there's always a kind of little bit of like uh, like comparing yourself that we all do, which yeah. which we shouldn't do. Yeah. Right? Um, I've I've got friends that I am yeah like, yeah we all... I, I am I'm terrible for comparing myself, right. um, and it's so silly, right. but yet. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you do it. Obviously, do. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's and it's such a, a an achievement in lots of ways to to, to to get published because it is such a hard slog to it get. Took ages anywhere. Yeah, yeah. It it takes so long, and there's so much heartbreak. Um, I uh, collected all of my rejections as screenshots on my phone. Um, I revealed that to one of my friends, and she was just like. Lucy, what are you doing? Right. Because <laughs> um, I wanted to reference them because I, I started doing it for like feedback and then it became, and then I was like, these are mine. Yeah. Like, this is, you know, it's part of my work. 
and kind of remind myself I've got hanging up in um, my room I've got one of the first pages from an early draft of Lullabies the show that I was just about to go to Edinburgh and do um, last time I was on Getting Better Acquainted and it's still got my kind of like pencil crossings out and my directors as well and I kind of framed it as like it gets better, work gets better this first draft of that poem was shit but you were really proud of that show in the end Right. keep keep going and with writing it like we're writing a novel it's there's two parts to that there's like making it as good as you want it to be and then there's also just keeping on persevering and believing in it when you're getting all of those rejections and then I guess there's a third part where you then uh, have kind of finally got your thing that you love through and then you have to work on that again because that's part of becoming (laughs) kind of published is to then have have notes and, and rewrites Definitely. Um, Yeah, so I went through um, some fairly significant changes with my agent before we went to submission. Um, The the changes that my publisher requested were probably a bit more minor and more kind of along the tweaking and refining stages. But it's still really hard. You keep thinking that you're done and then you get an email that's like, yeah, that's brilliant, okay, it's time to move on to line edits or, like, copy edits or proofreading. Right. Like, ah. um, but it's really interesting learning about how many, pay- how many stages there are in publishing. One of the things that Dialogue does um, is they've got a page in the back of all their books, which is like the credits on a film, and they list everyone who's been involved in working on that book, which is apparently not industry standard practice, which I think is weird, because right. it definitely... Um, should be right. No, um, it should be. So it's really great that you know, and it, it's like twenty, thirty people, right, doing loads of work, um, and you never meet some of them. It's so weird. Um, but yeah, it, I yeah, I really like um, publishing. Is a really really nice place full of nice people who like books and will talk to you about books and um, prosecco. Right. It's great in there. It does sound like the perfect place for you. It it is, yeah, those are my favourite things. My favourite things are excitedly talking about books and drinking fizz and that, yeah. Yeah, right. My favourite hobbies. (laughs) I mean, so, like, how how long has the process been from the beginning to the end, would you say? Um, So that's really interesting. I want to make sure I haven't, like, messed up my dates and misrepresented. So I think, working back in time, we are currently in July 2018, I got my book deal in August 2017. I got my agent in January 2017. I started looking for agents in January 2016. I, the first time I thought I had finished the book was September 2015. Right. <laughs> I started the book in January 2015. Right, right, right. Yeah, so um, three and a half years front to end um and a year of that I mean I say I spent a year getting an agent I also did do some fairly significant changes in that time which allowed me to get an agent because it made the book better right um but yeah three and a half years it's a long yeah it's a long chunk of time it's a long chunk of time because I mean Edinburgh which was previously my big creative thing that is one full year and people are surprised that that's that long right I've always found that as soon as you get you know you get home in September maybe take September like off to have a bit of a cry Um, (laughs) and then it's really time to start thinking at least about your broader themes yeah yeah, so I mean I would always find that when I was in Edinburgh I'd have I'd start getting ideas like 
getting ideas yeah. for the next one as well because you're yeah, you're like oh i that would work here you know you start thinking like that when you're there and, and then you're like you, what you am i setting as, myself up to yes. do and i think you know as well instinctively if you've got something right or something wrong right um although you're not always right about that actually um in my experience but i think you've got because I, I um my two edinburgh shows were quite different i think that that was quite deliberate um, yeah, they were very different shows in some I'm, ways. I mean, yeah. still, still you. So still me. There was some, you know, fans of you will probably have enjoyed both. But oh, they yeah. were def- very different. I hope things. so. And they were both uh, fairy tale based as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but one was very much like, "Hello, I am Lucy, a performer. We are going to have a happy hour together, you and I." And the right. other one was much more like a one-woman play. Yeah, it was a play. I mean, it yeah. was a play. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and before, I'd, so the next show that I was going to do and which I did write I'll tell you about this show but the point I was making was um, the next show was going to be going back to hello I am Lucy like yeah ringmaster of the poetry stage right um, so I wrote another show and um, I say this lightly because I don't believe in this kind of thing but it's definitely cursed <laughs> um, the first time I performed it was the day of the Brexit referendum wow and it's a show about disasters um, so maybe if you shouldn't be allowed to do that, yeah, that show well, or we'll have I another didn't, I didn't do it for crisis. A- yeah, well, I didn't do it for ages because Brexit hit me really hard and um, I started having my mild panic attacks and stuff. We had to ban news from the bedroom. Um, I started crying because my husband made a joke about marmalade. Um, like right. it, it was. This is very relatable. I'm like yeah. here, like nodding my head. <laughs> yeah. like, it was all like, a bit of a mess. Yeah, um, because it, I, I was shocked really shocked and genuinely frightened um and i'm not really less frightened but i've just like it's the new normal now i've just yeah yeah. i'm used to it i've just got this (laughs) low level like oh no turns out like our country's all in a poo age i like to think of it like a golden (laughs) age this is a poo age yeah um it'll pass but it's not great um yeah anyway so i didn't do it for ages because of brexit and then i did it as part of the whole city of culture celebrations and that went really well so then i did it again at a festival and that week um i found out that my dad was in hospital and he was was not going to be let out until he'd had major heart surgery and it was horrible like it was so horrible because it's a show about disasters and it's also and i had not realized this when i wrote it it's kind of about him um like there's a song that i sing at the end which is like a blues song about basically how terrible shit's going to happen and everyone you love's going to die. And that's it. Like, right. It's just a Mopey Blues song. That's one of the first songs he, to- he taught me on guitar. So I was like, oh, God. Like, this is... And it genuinely made me question the responsibility of putting myself in that position because I did that. And it was really childish of me, but it hadn't occurred to me that I might put myself in a position where I'd have to go on stage and talk about something deeply personal that I thought was a finished, closed emotion and wasn't, and made me really reflect on my Mermaid show, which is completely about pregnancy and motherhood. And I just kind of thought, like, oh, what a dick. Like, I could have... It's not utterly impossible that I could have put in a position where I'd have to perform that show after a pregnancy loss, maybe. That could have happened to me. And, like, 
Right. I kind of couldn't believe I'd been so irresponsible with my own, the like shepherding of my own emotions. I think in it, that's a kind of problem generally. It's a risky run, isn't it? The arts, right? Like you're always doing that to yourself potentially. I wrote a whole series of pieces about my dad and death and stuff like last year. I mean, he hasn't died yet since then, but like he's gonna die any minute yeah. and like like I knew when I was writing those that I was gambling with my emotions yeah. every time like I don't know if when I put it out in a month like it, he's yeah. gonna have died and I'm gonna feel very differently about it yeah. like that's kind of what we do we, we kind of yeah. yeah spin the wheel on our emotions I know I think see I'd, what happens I'd, I think like astonishingly I think I didn't know that I think I had this sort of childish belief that right. it was just all kind of gonna be okay forever and now that I interrogate that of course it wasn't idiot. Right. Like, um, so that's interesting. So that was your first experience kind of of, of, of tra- having to push down your emotional state in yeah, order to perform. It was the first time that it didn't feel safe right. to expose myself like that on stage. It was the first time that I was genuinely like, this might hurt me. Right. It didn't. In the end, it was quite cathartic and dad's fine. That's good. But, that's good uh, so that's good. Yeah, that's, um, good yeah, that's very good. But... I, I was I was shocked. Yeah. I was shocked. I kind of I thought I was doing something quite safe, and I think I kind of saw the ledge. Right. Um, but it seems like people, more sensible people like you, and I think a lot of artists are working with that in a much more. But even then, way. like it doesn't matter. Like you still, it still surprises you. Like that's how I am with like my, you know, my 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 show about masculinity. I've done that show so many times, uh, so I am prone to thinking, oh yeah. Won't, won't take anything from me now. Yeah. And then, then you know, you, you do it you know, the, the 150th time and that's the time when it suddenly uh, yeah. hits something and you're, like, having the reactions that you, you've learned to not have. It's yes. very strange. Yes, yes, it is very strange. And I think Edinburgh, again, to kind of come back to it, um, that's a really weird experience of doing something every day, every day, right. every day. Um, and, the, yeah, not the toll that it takes... Right. On you and the ways that you learn to survive it. Uh, right. Quite interesting. Because that's the difference between performance and, and writing. You can write something, you can write a novel that's deeply personal, and uh, you know, when you're writing it, you can get that, you know, that'll bring out all the emotions or yeah. whatever, and you deal with them at the time. Then you have it published, and then you don't have to read it on a day that yeah. you don't feel up to reading. Yeah, and you, you don't have to do anything. I mean, okay, you might book in like a literary festival, right. and then you'll have to talk about it. But about you it. can choose to not do that. Exactly. And you're still a novelist. You still, you know, it won't. Right. It, I don't. I don't really know if that would hurt your career a lot. Right, um, whereas performance, you are the page. That's it. That's it. You are, like, you yeah. are, you're required uh, yes. to, to, to deliver the story. And so yeah. you have to be there. You have to be a part of it. Yeah. And you have to be you have up to, be, to it. Yes, you have to be up to it. You have to turn up physically and mentally. Um, and you've got to bear that. And you've got to be there. I mean, you don't have to be there after the show to hear, you know, someone say to you, Yes. You know, I share that experience. Right. But I think you probably should. Like, I, think, I think most performers feel like that is something. I mean, yeah, like, depending on the show, I mean, with my show, I, I feel it's part of the show. Like, if I'm yeah. not there to do that, then that would not be responsible fully. Yeah. Uh, like, that's another part of it. Like, we, yeah. talk, we talk a lot about content notes and stuff like that, but we don't often think about aftercare. And, yeah, like, so there's exactly. all sorts of complicated things to, to think about with audiences and Yeah, and, con- and content notes are an important part, but you can't... Yeah, I mean, that, that's only 
one part of the duty of care that you have yeah. to your audience. You can't be like, what, I told you content night suicide, not my problem. Right. Like, you, you've got to still right, right, be right. Exactly, exactly. Um, right. yeah. and, then that's, and that's the thing, like, it's, it's, it's for you as well. Like, the thing is, you're, we're, 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 we're talking about the duty of care for the audience. Yeah. But as you're, as you're demonstrating, we're not necessarily great at, at duty of care for ourselves. Well, I think in, in my experience, in most artists, because one of the great things about being a freelance creative is you get to be your own boss. And that is also one of the shit things about being a freelance creative, because often if you're a freelance creative, you are a crap boss <laughs> and you don't, um, you make yourself work overtime all the time. You do not protect yourself adequately. You never pay your own expenses. Um, like you, it, it, we treat ourselves badly. Yeah, I think, and I, yeah, like I, there's so much that because I, I still have a boss because I still have a day job. Right, and I do things to myself as a writer that I would that Sam would never do. Right. I would never let him. Can't report yourself to HR. Can't report yourself to <laughs> HR. No, exactly. Um, because you're also HR, so you're yeah. probably just going to let it exactly, slide. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think that that's one of the things. I don't think that you do adequate risk assessment. Right. No, that's um, true. On, on your... Yeah, certainly. We're all getting better at talking about mental health. Right. Even the, in the last couple of years, I think. Well, it, I think better. it doesn't help as well that in the arts there is a culture of risk assessment is a bad idea because you're yeah. supposed to give everything to your art and if you're not suffering, then you're not really doing it, are Yes, you? I think that that's a really toxic yeah, idea. Absolutely. Have you seen Nanette? I have, I love it. So, yes, um, so Hannah Gadsby, I should explain it in case someone hasn't heard what Nanette is. Um, it's on Netflix, it's a stand-up um, and as part of it, um, it's really... I thought it was an absolutely brilliant hour of stand-up. It really took apart what stand-up is is and what it can be. Um, And one of the things that I loved was the... um, the sunflower someone comes up to her and says oh Van Gogh I shouldn't spoil it all yeah there's a but there is a great part about but there's Van Gogh a, yeah there's a brilliant part about Van Gogh and the role of his suffering in his art and because Hannah Gadsby has an art history degree she absolutely subverts what yes. the common narrative is around that and it's great yeah no I, I love that I love that uh, show that she's done and it, it does speak to something that's very important that for, for people in the arts to to grapple with this mm. idea that you know like if we just give of ourselves you know then what's left yeah. and, and what damage do we do and how do we control those stories and when we when we tell a story that is nice for an audience are we kind of changing our own story in yeah. a way that isn't helpful like so she has uh, a, a story that she never tells fully because yes. that wouldn't get the laughs. Yeah. But by not telling it fully, she never processes it. And I think yeah. that's something that's very relatable to me yeah. and uh, pr- probably pretty much everybody. Because like, a sad story isn't funny. There has to be an unexpected reversal. The only types of stories that you can really tell on stage are either ones where you triumph, which is fine if it's true, yeah. but not if you've manipulated the story to make that, or the ones where you're the butt of the joke. Yeah. And there was... Um, Those are definitely the, the, the trends within yeah, stories. Yeah, the I main... Think as, as, there are other ones. Yeah, so like, you, you do, like, the, I do the, it, the yeah, stuff that you're so doing with um, real-life storytelling. Exactly, true storytelling, it, that's one that of the reasons... That dismantles that. Exactly, it's one of the yeah. reasons it's very liberating to get a whole load of strangers in a room and get them just telling stories yeah. uh, without the necessity to, to be the hero or the, yeah. the, the funny person or the butt of the joke. But you're absolutely right, like 
stand-up comedy and to a lesser extent like spoken word any kind of performance-based yeah. storytelling thing means people hide and manipulate because that's what yeah that's another part of what being a, an artist and a creator is is, yeah. is, is, and is hiding being, and manipulating yeah in any part any kind of performance discipline manipulation yeah is key yeah. Um, you need to. Yeah. I mean, even in writing, like even yes. in writing, I think in, in in pretty much every kind of art, there's a, an element of manipulation and how yeah. you feel about that and what kind of manipulation it is yeah. moves I'm, around. Uh, I'm always very very conscious of the role that all of this plays in social media, as I'm a bit better at being honest on some platforms than others. Right. I am crap at being honest on Instagram. Right. Really rubbish, and I do it all the time, and I catch myself all the time. I take a lot of photos of my writing practice, and it's always sunbathed, scrubbed wooden tables <laughs> with, like, a cup of coffee on my laptop with some caption like, ooh, back to the grindstone, yeah. or something. And it's so rarely, like, me at 6am on a sofa, like, swaddled in a blanket... Yeah drinking cold coffee that I found from somewhere so I don't bother to boil a kettle and right. like oh um and it's and I never know whether that is actually okay because maybe it's okay maybe it's me making yeah. my life maybe it's me picking the positives of my life and choosing to amplify those side, yeah. and maybe it's not okay because I'm making I'm making it I don't I hope I'm not giving the impression that I live the kind of life where I always have like latte art <laughs> Because I don't. Well, it's nice. It's nice from somebody who does see your Instagram feed, who's also a writer, to know that it's not always as kind of nice and fun yeah. as it as it as it looks. Although you know, that's I I, I do know that of course there's always more to uh, anyone's life than just whatever they yeah. show on Instagram. Yeah. And I mean, and and you know, that said, your writing practice, you've got you're pretty good at it. Like you, you're pretty good at like finding a balance between, like you say, you've got a day job. You've, you've, you've kind of balance yeah. things around. And yeah, um, I, I think that's going quite well at the moment. So my day job is three days a week, um, and it is the kind of day job that you actually leave at 5.30, which is important. Really important. Really important. And the supportive, like, today is one of my normal writing days, but I'm in London, and that was past just, like, sure, have fun. Like, they're, they're lovely people. Um, and they're very supportive of my writing. So I'm not kind of, yeah, I, I, know, I know that I'm quite lucky in that regard. I'm not saying that it's always easy to mix writing with a day job. I find it quite easy, partly because my day job is very nice, and also, like, I live in Oxford, where I can commute anywhere within the city on yeah. a bike in half an hour. Right, right, right. Um, and also, it's not London. Oxford is expensive, but it's not London expensive, so it's easier to live on three days a week work um, and for the other two days of the week I do very kind of formal writing days and also I normally try and fit in an hour if I can on working days and weekends Right. so theoretically all of that adds up to um, 21 hours per week in practice, obviously, that's not yeah. like um, it, it's either. But that's great to have that yeah. as the plan. In practice, it's either ten hours or forty hours, and never really anything <laughs> else. Um, right. But at least it really is normally at least ten hours. Right. Uh, which is great. Right. 
I mean, again, that's very relatable to me. Like the the objective is to like this twenty one hours, but it's over ten or forty is yeah. very much how my life goes. Too. Yeah, but yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> like if I'm really into something or I've got got a deadline, then like yeah, I can I can get up at six and you know yeah. plow through a couple of hours and then work. I did well. There was one day um, when I was very like smugly having dinner with my boyfriend's best friend, and I was like, oh, I've just come from the library, and I knew I was showing off because I'd had a really good day, and he was like, oh did you do writing as well as go to your day job today? Which I definitely wanted him to ask. I was like, oh, yes, Roland. Why, look, I've done 3,000 words. I got up early to do writing on the sofa with a coffee before I started my day. And then I went to the library at lunch hour. And now I've just done it. I'm definitely pretending that that is a normal day when, in fact, it is not a normal day. It is an exception. It's it's that you want, uh, like, with writing and things like that that you do on your own nobody else knows what labour you've done unless yeah. you tell them so it is a complicated one yeah you kind of got to you know, tell you, you yeah. need to tell them or they'll just think that you know it's easy and you yeah. don't want people to think that because if people are trying to write they need to know it's not easy yeah definitely <laughs> yeah definitely and I like I like Twitter for this I like that you can go on Twitter and someone like you know someone massive like Ben Aronovich or Marion Keys will just post something being like only written 300 words today and they're all shit and right. like, that's really helpful yeah definitely <laughs> in demystifying definitely the process and it's like yeah sometimes you do only write 300 words and they're all shit and that's okay definitely i am publishing a book through unbound unbound are a publishing company which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is their half publishing company and half crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. Unbound approached me in December to see if I wanted to adapt my show What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity into a book and I said yes please I definitely would like to do that and so that is what I'm doing. If you go to the Unbound website, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes, you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. The way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it, sharing it on social media, recommending it to other people, those kinds of things. You can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page. There's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about. But basically, Mansplaining Masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society, but also the ways that men hurt other people in society. It is not a book that says that men are the problem, but it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution and if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it you can listen to a podcast of 
the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk and also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men which was a reflection on an extension of the show. So listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear and if you do then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen. So what is your book? Like, what's it called? What's it about? So, my book... (laughs) My favourite. So, my book is called One More Chance, and it is about a prisoner, resident of HMP Holloway, called Danny Grove. Uh, Danny um, has a toddler daughter, Bethany, who was taken into care and who she's desperate to get back. One day, Danny gets a new cellmate, Martha, who offers her a way to potentially see the child again, but it comes at a cost. The book, the novel, is interestingly sort of semi within areas that your day job also covers right? yes it is so I had the idea for it when I was visiting the HMP Holloway mother and baby unit which is like it's a nice place but it's a bleak thing to exist if of you course. know what I mean yes, um, absolutely. and no one likes that there are babies in prison um, including the women who are the mothers of them right. um, but it, it's the least bad solution yeah, sure um so yeah I uh I had also found out that day that uh HMP Holloway has a swimming pool which oh my god um or had I mean it's closed now and I was chatting to one of the mums and uh she told me that um I kind of I basically asked her where a baby was um and she said that its dad had come um, and picked him up and taken him swimming. I didn't know at the time how incredibly unusual that is. So I think it's 5% of children whose mums go to prison get to stay in their own home, um, being looked after by someone there. Um, normally, there isn't um, a father figure in the picture. If they do stay in the family, which is the most common thing to happen, it'll be a mum or a sister stepping up to take that. So that was really unusual that she had you know, the, the baby's father would come and take him out. And I said, oh, how lovely. Um, do you take your baby swimming in the prison swimming pool? Um, just making kind of idle chit-chat. And she gave me this quite, like, disparaging look, and she's like, would you take your baby swimming in a prison swimming pool? And I just thought, God, yeah, no, of course I wouldn't. <laughs> like, what a ridiculous thing to say. Um, right. Like, no. Um, because, you know, with the best will in the world, the, the staffing isn't going to be there. That's not, that's not a safe place. That laid a bit of a seed, and that incident isn't in the book at all, and that character isn't in the book. Uh, none of the book is set on the mother and baby unit. Um, but it kind of triggered a bit of an idea. Right. And what kind of, like, what genre would you say that you're... This is a, the horrible thing, isn't it? Like, you make a thing and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing. There's no reason to, like, give it other categories. So one of the brilliant to. things about Dialogue, um, my brilliant publisher, is that they are a cross-genre publisher. Um, so my book is allowed to be cross-genre and I haven't had to squash it, right, particularly good. because it is cross-genre. It's kind of a psychological thriller... But not quite like, and uh, it, it's you know it's commercial fiction for sure. Right. It's been described as women's fiction. It has a mystical element, yeah, which is not a feature of psychological thrillers. Right. Um, so yeah, it, but it's uh, I like to think of it as book club fiction. Right. 
Um, I mean, that's that's definitely a good way. Like, yeah. that would be a great way for oh, that'd it to That would be great, go. yeah. I really want... I asked my mum if she'd um, have it as one of the titles for her book club, and she was like, no, why not? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Did she give you a reason? Um, I think, basically, <laughs> I think her real reason was that would be really cringy for her, and I do accept that. I mean, that, that I can understand I that. do understand, I understand but that. she could have got them all to read it and then just not turned up. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, it's funny, it's funny. Like you, you always think, like, uh, your closest family are going to be your biggest champions, but actually it's more complicated than that when it actually comes to it. I'm not saying <laughs> that she won't be your biggest champion in other ways. But She's like, one of my biggest readers. Her, said, and right, dad, exactly. um, her and dad have read the book more times <laughs> than anyone else. I think they've read, I think they've, both read it at least three times. Well, and, the, and you know, and they're still they're, that's that, that's good. I mean, that's yeah, a good they've, they've only read the finished version once, right? But it's only been out for a couple of weeks, so that's right. still pretty. Good. No, I mean, I, yeah, certainly. I've 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 not I've not read the finished version yet. I've not even read any of the drafts, so I'm very excited yeah. to finally read it. I mean, and so like when you say like uh, book club fiction, I mean, and when you said as well, it's been described as women's fiction. I mean, how, 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 like, how do you feel about these, this, those kind of things? I mean, women's fiction is a very complicated It's a very complicated term. term. Yeah, it's a very complicated term. Um, I mean, it's women's fiction. There's I mean, only one male character in it. Like, it's sure. clearly women's fiction. Um, that's not true, but, like, the, the main action takes place in a women's prison. Yeah. Um, and it, it's very difficult and a very loaded term because there's a big part of me that kind of feels like, oi... Like, it, it, you don't call fiction that's mainly to do with men men's fiction. That's right. just fiction, so... I mean, if you did, there'd be so much men's fiction. There'd be so be much men's fiction, quite. Exactly. So part of me feels like, I hate the term for that, but one thing that I do like about the term is, you know, there is a positive to... You know, there's nothing wrong with being a woman, and also there's nothing wrong with writing about women things and it does give people an idea of what the book will be yeah. as well i mean as as a as a man who likes women's fiction and who likes like women's films like yeah. films that people like to like dismiss as women's films are some of my favorite films um it's useful to know if something is going to be in the genre yeah. that i enjoy it's a yeah it's a useful <laughs> tag um so i feel very conflicted about the term yeah, women's yeah. fiction because part of me is like it's a useful descriptor and there's nothing wrong with it and don't be ashamed of liking girly things like you're allowed to put your hair in pink bows if you want to that's cool but part of yeah there is also a part of me that's like oh god like right come on <laughs> right because i mean it's it's you didn't write it for women you wrote it for, <laughs> wrote it for everybody people. who wants to read it right? yeah i mean no, on one level, I guess you write it for yourself, and on another level, you write it for the people that you want to impress. Yeah. And all these kinds not of to elements. be not to be too mystical, but the person I really wrote it for was Danny, who's the protagonist, who's a person who doesn't exist, um, but she feels so real for me. And once I had a first draft, uh, she was she became quite real as a sort of driving. Well, yeah. Force as a kind of sentimental centre of it. Well, characters do become real. Yeah, they really do. Um, yeah, they really, really do. Um, I'm. Uh, currently, my, so my new project, um, which I will talk about in a slightly cagey way, but I'd just like to talk about a little bit, um, is a return to um, a previous character that I've worked with before, um, and that's a real kind of joy. Right. And she's changing a lot, but I, it, it feels like a kind of like I knew I hadn't finished with you. Right, right. Well, and that's it. That you live with these people 
so long as well and like you you craft them you work them you know you, you help I guess you the author is like the stuff that happens to us in life that shapes us yeah your, your your job is to shape the character yes and so you know you so I guess it's like a parental role in yeah, some parental slash god god role yeah, right, right. Um, depends on you know how high you want to go concert, yeah. yeah it does about that also if you believe in god which I don't so <laughs> right. apparently unless it's me uh, that's flattering um, but yeah no I think definitely like characters kind of in a way they, they, they just exist on their own and you as the author you can throw incident at them and you can assume that it will shape them in certain ways. But I think until you write it, you don't entirely know, necessarily. Right. Um, which is why I always have uh, such, such tension over plotting. Um, so I do plot. I like to plot. I all, I'm one of these people who always likes to know exactly what's going to happen next. Um, so I plot my books, but I'm terribly prone to over-plotting them. And then your characters just turn into these, like little paper dolls that you're just pushing around right they've got less choice like you, yeah. they can't surprise you you much. have yeah you haven't given them a meaningful choice um it's <laughs> a weird thing to say about yeah. people that we're completely creating completely making up yeah <laughs> really weird <laughs> but it, it's true you know it's it, it, it's it's like characters do surprise you and they do make choices sometimes they make yeah. choices you don't want them to make yes um sometimes they derail everything yeah and right. that's yeah yeah, exactly. Sometimes you, you, you'll be writing about like, some other things and a character in that will become so important that they take over everything and you have yeah. to get rid of everything else you've got and yeah. just keep the character. Yeah, sometimes. definitely. I think that's kind of where the writing, um, writing as therapy comes in. I think that often that is your subconscious muscling to the front and being like actually it turns out this is the issue we're thinking about at the moment right right you can't beat that as well like I remember when we were at university Jen had a crisis of oh shall I be a writer or whatever and she sort of wrote in her like journal why she was going to give up writing and then she kind of finished it and she was like I mean I basically just demonstrated that I am not going to stop writing because I've yeah. written it and I've written a whole thing and I've like been creative and I've done yeah. all of it and I've demonstrated that I am a writer yes. even as I thought I was trying to tell, say I wasn't yeah. and I was giving it up definitely I think we've all like yeah I can really relate to that right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the Nanette thing as well which right. is essentially a stand up show about how Hannah Gadsby's definitely going to give up stand up right which, which clearly isn't yeah like, I mean <laughs> she's not going to give up standing up like she's I think she's saying like she she, she may give up stand up comedy but not yeah. stand up which I think is good uh, which actually is very much like if, if it was you know a few years ago I'd be capitalising on, on all of that as much as possible with stand up tragedy but that's a, a sleep at the moment so yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to push it as much but Hannah Gadsby is definitely like like if, if I ever bring up back stand up tragedy she's like my like dream. number one dream yeah. uh, performer on that yeah so you've so you've 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 written the book it's been published like it's in like you can hold it's it in, in your hand there's physical copies it's currently out um electronically and in trade paperback and november is the mass market paperback release which is when it will probably start popping up in uh bookshops right because this is another thing that people who are writers don't necessarily know is that the work doesn't end ever in some ways it certainly doesn't end when it's published yeah no it does but I mean I'm still kind of discovering right that which is exciting I mean I've got a couple of dates booked in um, but I think maybe unlike some writers I'm just so comfortable with sort of this bit 
Yeah, right, right. Um, the kind of like, ooh, can you fill out some questions for a website? Ooh, there's a review or there's a literary festival. We want you to do a talk. And that that's very much my com- much more my comfort zone right. than the previous things right. have been. Interesting. Yeah, no, I can see that. Um, that feels like I feel quite confident about that. I'm like, yeah, I can, I can do this. Like, I can read, you know, <laughs> a, a review that isn't that positive and take constructive things from it. I can stand up in front of people and talk about stuff. I know that bit. Right, all of the skills you've, you've got from yeah. uh, doing Edinburgh, from doing, yeah. Yeah, like, hosting slam poetry nights exactly, with Exactly, yeah. Everything that you've done, like, up to now. All the stage stuff, even, you know, back, like, I first started seriously performing when I was 16. Right. Um, just doing folk singing. And, yeah, that's all. So being on stage is really easy. But the kind of the sort of bewilderment of being on your own in the middle of a novel which is such a vast expanse of words like a word desert it can feel like sometimes and you've got a character who's your guide but then sometimes just in the middle of nowhere they'll just vanish and you won't know where you are anymore you've got to make a decision whether to sort of plug on and potentially waste six months or give up and potentially waste six months right um, and, and you know i mean I'm, I'm not saying that it's always the ideal but it's okay to waste six months as well it is okay you to know waste that's six the months. thing it's so hard to tell yourself that like i've written whole novels that i've been had to just give up on yeah yeah <laughs> i think saying, like, I, i'm never gonna make that good i think i've got maybe four novels that i abandoned at twenty thousand words Twenty thousand words seems to very much be that the point the point yeah where I I sometimes I look at it I'm like oh dear (laughs) (laughs) this is all bollocks um yeah sometimes just the wrong idea uh sometimes just the character not there but yeah I suppose the thing is if it was an Edinburgh show you wouldn't have a choice or rather like the choice would be much more pointed because if it's March and you've suddenly decided that your first 20 minutes is shit, you've got a choice whether to scrap that entirely or rewrite it and you've lost two months off your scheduled programme so you can have to rewrite it really fast or push through and finish it anyway and see if it goes somewhere. But either way, there's a deadline, there's something that's going to happen. Right. Whether it's kind of good enough to perform in a weird way doesn't quite come into question because you've booked the show before you've written it. Right. So you're doing it, that's it. Again, and all of this stuff is stuff that will have helped you then to, to apply that to working on a novel, to having a schedule, to being, like, giving yourself personal deadlines and, like, being very, yeah, like, strict I'm, on yourself, which is kind of a requirement. That's true. I'm quite good at personal process. deadlines, um, but I do... I'm still working on the relationship between deadlines and the quality, um, as I find that... I can sit down and make myself write. I can sit down and force myself to write a thousand words. I just 100% absolutely can. That is really easy and I can do it quite quickly. But when I read them back, what sometimes happens is I'll find that I have in great detail described someone pulling a pint for an entire thousand words and not in an interesting artsy, zoom in on a tiny moment way, just in a boring (laughs) way. And so sometimes I just read a whole scene back. I'm like, what? Like... But, this I mean, is stupid. You know, but, I mean, that's OK, because you can delete the scene. And you probably learnt some stuff from writing it, even though you delete it. You know, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the hope. Anyway, that's what I tell myself. It's definitely the hope. Yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> definitely the hope. I, what I really always tell myself is that no work is ever, ever wasted because you learn from absolutely anything, yeah. even the most crass mistake. And I really hope that's true. I think it is. I think so. I mean, I think it is true. It's like what you learn from it is not always... Yeah, I mean, it just depends on... Like, sometimes what you learn from it might not on balance be worth it compared to what what you experience I mean I think you like you're building your sentence level craft whatever you're writing like whatever like even if you even if you're writing a concept that is upon closer inspection nonsense yeah you're writing sentences you're building that skill right um but yeah as you said sometimes is it worth six months just to build that skill probably was alright to start with on balance no but you know (laughs) it's fine um yeah, I mean, you know, like, when I think about things that, like, were learning experiences that, on balance, I wouldn't, like, choose to do again, it's more like being bullied at school or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where, like, wasting time isn't actually the end of the world. Like, as far as things go, it's not the biggest... It's not like, the biggest you know, thing. And, and you learn a lot more from wasting time in lots of ways. <laughs> at least, yeah. it's, you know, what you learn is useful to you. Yeah, uh, and it's not always useful to you bad things, but you still learn from them. Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> it's a good idea. It's quite a good idea. I haven't really thought about that. The kind of cost-benefit analysis. It's like, oh, you learn something from every experience. Right. Was it worth? Was it worth? <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't really thought of it exactly in these terms before. It's quite interesting. Because I feel like you know, like a, a string of um, bad relationships in my late teens definitely taught me a lesson. Could I have learned that lesson from just one of those bad yeah, relationships? Right, right. Probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I don't know it really well now. Yeah, exactly. You've really learned the lesson. <laughs> yeah. Just, so that's good. Um, yeah, so well done, me. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, so you're like, yeah, you're you're selling your book, I guess. You're you're promoting your book, which is something you're comfortable with doing. Yeah. But like, like, what's it like to have it out there? Oh, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. It's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely not over it. It's only been a couple of weeks, and I'm not over it. Right. And people are so nice. <laughs> so nice. People who you don't even know that well will private message you with, like, a photo of the book as it arrives, or they'll message you out of the blue and you haven't spoken to them for seven years and be like, oh, I loved it. I can't believe you wrote it. This is amazing. Can't wait for the next one. Like, people are so brilliant about it um and that's been really that's been lovely really really lovely people are so supportive and they really get it yeah i I feel like people are getting it right so you're starting to get responses as well so you're seeing what people think of it responses and questions and there's um there's a kind of big ambiguity at uh, i was gonna say the heart of the book it's actually not central to the plot but there is a big ambiguity in the book um which could go both ways and loads of people have been talking about it and that's brilliant um and seeing it on real life bookshelves is yeah brilliant right, right, right. really brilliant and um just like really little things like going to a wedding and when someone says what do you do having the confidence to not tell them about your marketing career and then tack on like oh so write sometimes to do these spoken word shows but just to go i'm a writer right yeah, it's become less ambiguous for you. That that that, like all writers, I think, 
dread the question of, of what do you do yeah. in, in some ways. I certainly, it's one of the standard questions I ask on this show, and when I ask it to writers or creative people in general, yeah. it provides a lot more angst than somebody who is, you know, what they do is what yeah. they consider themselves to be, and they're fine with it. Yeah, I think it's, like, it's what you consider yourself to be. The absolute hardest time was um, when I'd stopped doing spoken word, but I hadn't got an agent yet, or, and I hadn't got a book deal yet. Right. Um, because then when I talked about it, people, because of course they ask, um, would find out it's unpublished, and then we have to have a long chat about the relative merits of self-publishing and how right. unlikely it is to get a book traditionally published. Right. Um, which is fine the first time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like... Yeah, me and Jen were literally saying this the other day. It's like inevitable that if you say you write or, you've, or you're writing a book, someone will tell you about self-publishing. Yeah, pretty much every conversation, if it's with, you know, a handful of people. We all know about self-publishing. Some, yeah. It's literally been around for a long, longer than the internet self-publishing. Yeah, it, been it wasn't invented in the last uh, 18 months. We know about it. We make our choices, you know. Sometimes people do self-publish, and that's a, yeah. a reasonable choice. Yeah, I actually but... had a really interesting conversation with um, some kids I was teaching. They were, oh, they were teenagers. I can't remember what exact age they were, but they asked about self-publishing in a brilliant, genuinely interested kid way, and they wanted to know all about it. They wanted to know about the money um, and the likelihood of success. Um, and I was telling them about Fifty Shades of Grey, which probably wasn't the most appropriate <laughs> example I could think of, but it's just an, it's, a, it's a really good example yeah. of a book that they've heard of that was self-published first, right. and they found, they found that mind-blowing. Right. Uh, but one of the guys on my imprint, one of my stable mates, um, his book was self-published, but it, um, Charmaine went back and picked it up, Brothers in Blood, coming out in September. I think, um, because she said, like, she just said she read it when she was a scout. She was surprised to see that it hadn't been picked up. She felt like it had a future in traditional publishing. He chosen to self-publish it, and the advice that you're always given is like, oh, no, don't self-publish, because you can never take it back and you'll never get a traditional publisher again. But, you know, that... Like he's, actually, shown, he's shown that's not true. There's actually it's not loads true. of pathways through the world, and yeah. some of them haven't been invented yet or done yet. Like just because it's never yeah. been done, sometimes that doesn't mean it's not going to be done in the future. Just yeah. you know, plug away doing whatever you do and do it in the best way you can. Yeah. Try and get exactly. it to people in the best ways you can see. Yeah, exactly. You know. um, yeah, just make yeah make your own decisions about your work. Right. Um, but normally some random in a pub is not going to have a it's better It's how input. many people think they're experts on the publishing industry. Yeah, you know, I don't get this with my marketing work right, at all. Right, 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 right. Um, actually, people do think that they know how to do social media. Even if they don't. No, that's, that's, <laughs> that's true. Um, but, yeah... But definitely, like, you wouldn't meet a doctor and, and tell them, no. you, know, how, how the, you know, different options for how they can get employed. Really you basic know. sometimes. Like, oh, have you considered going to medical yeah. school? So he probably has. Yeah, you know, you, can, you, could, you, could, work in the, you could work in private... You know, you could be a <laughs> private doctor as well as... You know, I know you're working in the NHS, but, you know, yeah. private doctors get paid a lot more. Yeah. And it's, it's like, you know, you, know, you could be... I know you work <laughs> in A&E, but you know you could be a GP. Right, right, right. You'd have more time with your family, mate. <laughs> yes, they know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, which is not to say that, of course, lots of people mean these things in a very positive and, and kind also, way. Also, on the flip side, it's also, you know, there is, there is the show-off part of me 
really likes having the career that people want to talk about <laughs> at parties because that, that's what it is. Like they want to talk about self-publishing because it's it, like they're interested. They think being a writer is a cool job. That's why they want to tell you about self-publishing. And so that is that's the other side of it, which right. is excellent. But they also the, the other thing is that people don't consider writers to be writers until they're published. Yes. And you're you are that now. You have you've, yeah. you've got like so you can legitimately say I'm a writer and people will so be impressed. My, so my line and this be this is just very much my own like personal um, the difference between writer and author. So, so facetious to be like people who write are writers because obviously some people just write shopping lists and they probably wouldn't consider themselves to be writers, but. I think that writer is a self-defining term. If you say that you're a writer, I genuinely think you are. People can't, no one can take that away from you. The same as if you say you're an artist. That, that's your call. Um, however, you become an author upon publication. Right, OK. Um, so for me, that was the step, because I did a lot of work on being like, I am a proper writer, I am a proper writer. And so it was helpful to me to have that little, like, break. Right, um, where it's like, well, now I'm also an author, which is really this really cool right. extra, but doesn't take away from yeah. You've got writer forever, writer forever, and I had it. I've had I've had, had being it. a writer right. for a long time. I've been a writer since I was seventeen. Um, yeah, that's yeah. And that's when and, and when you were seventeen, was that when you first started writing prose, or was that songs, or which which was the? Um, so I started writing songs when I was fifteen. Uh, I got my first guitar Uh, well actually I was still borrowing my dad's guitar when I was 15 Um, he said I had to play guitar for 6 months and then he'd buy me a nice guitar and he did for my 16th birthday it's still the one I play yeah so I started writing songs then and also I used to write like stuff like skits and things Right. Um, I wrote a story for my friend's 16th birthday party which was like magic realism is giving it a little bit too much gravitas (laughs) but it was like a silly magic funny story about our sixth form band um like turning into pineapples <laughs> and she had to do a spell to, to turn them back into boys uh, like I'd, I've always done stuff like that for as long as I can remember when I was in sixth form I started a little bit more seriously writing poetry and some short stories and I entered a couple of competitions um, when I went to university I got distracted by drama club and left-wing politics right to distracted. distracted by <laughs> yeah um yeah so I got really into um I got really into politics. I spent a lot of time organising talks, stuff, going to protests and things. And I was president of the drama club. Then in my third year, I did a module course in creative writing. And I loved it. And I applied for an MA on a whim because I had some money to do an MA um, because I'd been left an inheritance that was exactly the same amount as my course fees. Brilliant. Well, that's, that's so, it feels like it's meant to be. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you, great Uncle Fred. Um, <laughs> like, genuinely, um, that was that's exactly like that's exactly right. the amount of money, and that's what I wanted to do. And I'm so happy I did it. I love doing my writing MA, although I am a big believer that you don't have to. Right. You don't have to do an MA, you don't and have I can to study writing to be a writer. Don't have to study yeah. writing to be a writer, and I can tell you at least five, probably more like ten projects that I've been involved in in adulthood that I have learned as much about writing right. as I did every Edinburgh show. I have right. learned more about creative writing than I did on my writing. MA. Yeah, I mean, I studied creative writing undergraduate. And I, I, yeah, I, I, I would echo that. Like the things I've learned about creating stuff have mostly come since I graduated. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think my creative writing MA, it taught me how to learn and it taught me how to build communities. It taught me how to build a workshop group. It was brilliant for teaching me how to accept feedback in a constructive and helpful way and how to give feedback. But what was more personally helpful for me was how to accept it. Right. And to deal with that process and not... Because it's such a skill, like just a skill of not getting arsy. Yeah. It's not a skill I have, so... uh... (laughs) I mean, certainly it wasn't a skill I had back at university. I definitely was not good at taking criticism. I was quite good at giving it, but that's the worst combination. Every Wednesday afternoon for three hours, um, we just had workshop where we just sat on sofas and said and just critiqued each other's work in, like, probably slightly hilarious student ways. (laughs) Um, But that that was very good, and that really carried over to my sort of working and general and personal life as well so that's cool but yeah learn, learning how to learn but there, you know there's books I've read that genuinely I've, I've learned as much but would I have been primed to absorb that knowledge as well I don't yeah, I don't know exactly. probably not there's different ways of learning isn't there yeah but um, also I'd say if you can't if you can't afford it don't bother worrying about it <laughs> like because so many people can't and I only you know yeah. it, was, it was a luck a strike of luck right um Yes. Exactly, that's the thing. Do what you can do what you can with the resources you have. Right? Exactly. Do got, what you can with the resources. You know, the better your resources, the more you can do and and that's yeah. great too. But like, you know, people shouldn't be disheartened if they don't have the resources because yeah. you can Absolutely. do in amazing term, things. In terms them. of money but also in terms of time. Yeah. And in terms of just bandwidth, like yeah. brain space. There's that so you many can things devote. that resources really means and, and, yeah. and, and, and it's easy to think just it's just money. Space but equipment. Yeah, or like support Friends. networks. Yeah. Exactly, yes. right. Yeah, right. definitely. And so you, you're, all of that's done, the, the book. There's no more, yeah. you can't make any more tweaks. No, you know, but I could write a sequel if I wanted, sequel. and I might. Yes, sure. Because I love the world. Um, so I may do that. That's not the project I'm currently working on, but I might. But yeah, no, it's done. I can't go back. And if, I mean, I guess if I saw a typo, if I went to a second... Yeah. I could probably. It's prob- I'm you probably still got get time. Taken out so I, d- I don't think mass market paperback will have gone to print yet. So ah, right. I could actually probably change that right now. Right. But um, yeah, not really. Like I can't. I can't go in and change the endome. And now that that's all happening, are you are you working on other things? Yes, I'm working on a new novel that I'm super excited about. I'm very deep into doing research. Um, about the um, yeah which is kind of thrilling some of the research themes are quite upsetting Um, I'm doing a lot of research on Syria for it and that's very upsetting Um, I watched Dispatch's um, documentary called Syria Disappeared and it was so upsetting I had to take three little breaks in the middle of watching it um, because it's so affecting I actually know the producer for that and yeah, I, I I messaged her as soon as I was finished with it, and so I can't believe, you know, this must have been, you know, yeah. the, the emotion going back to what we were saying, right. you know, the emotional toll that she if, must have if taken. It's hard on for that. you to watch the documentary. Yeah. She's been with so much more footage yes. for so long. Yes, and we all know how much and the like, people because so much it of it takes was over interviews your life. with people. Yes, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And we know how much it takes over your life. Yeah, um, and you know, I get wound up enough about the people that I make up in my head and her subjects were real people standing in front of her people that she now considers friends Um, so 
Yeah, that was really hard. And I'm currently um, listening on Audible, actually, to We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, um, which is a collection of um, just first-person accounts. And that is also super upsetting research. But I'm also researching mermaids, one of my first <laughs> loves. Um, right. I spent Wednesday afternoon reading The Surface Breaks, which is Louisa Neal's young adult retelling of The Little Mermaid, uh, in the bath, which is the best place. That's the best place to read about mermaids, yeah. Um, And the first scene that she does, which I loved, is something that's in the original Hans Christian Andersen, which is left out of most retellings, which is the mermaids are preparing for a party and they have these pearls on spikes and they jam them into their tails and twist them to keep them in because that's how they adorn themselves. Right. And it makes them bleed and it really hurts and they're heavy and they pull on you, on your flesh. And, um, yeah, it's such a bold opening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's what the story's about so I'm really looking forward to finishing that, that's awesome and uh, yeah, The Little Mermaid remains one of my favourite stories Mermaids are fascinating as as people may have heard in our first conversation we both share an interest in mermaids and in fairy tales in general as well but like like mermaids are a fascinating, fascinating thing to me yes because I also think there's, even though mermaids as a concept have existed for a long time, we've only sort of scratched the surface of what actually kind of human fish yeah. hybrids might be like. I know, and also mermaids have been around for so long um, that some of the stories are lost. Right. Um, the first ever mermaid myth was in what was then Assyria. Right. Um, and that story is lost. Um, oh, I mean, I've got more research to do on that um guys tweet me if you've got anything (laughs) um on the atagatis um but uh yeah we've been telling mermaid myths for four thousand years um mermaids like dragons um pop up everywhere where there's civilization right i mean obviously not landlocked is that true maybe there are river mermaids i can't say that i I can't say that with confidence i reckon there will be i reckon there'll be river river spirits or something like yeah river water spirits yes um, but they're definitely, yeah, they're one of those myths that we, as humans, we kind of need to keep telling, yeah. we need to keep saying. And yes, what would a human-fish hybrid <laughs> even be like? I mean, Did yeah. you read The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock? I haven't, no. Oh, I, I recommend it. Um, it's obviously about mermaids and also is one of my favourite genres of fiction, which is sexy Victoriana. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's really good and that has some really interesting ideas about what a mermaid might really be. Right. Uh, which is, I found, almost Doctor Who-like. Um, I won't say too much because a lot of this content is at the very end of the book, so spoilers. I mean, but you, you do get, as well, you get, like... Um, like I remember, like, when I've gone to yeah, museums yeah. of witchcraft, you often see, yes. like, you know... A, a, some unfortunate some... monkey stapled to yeah, a carp. Yeah, right, right, right. Basically, yeah, in a, in a, in a jar. There's one in the British Museum. Right. <laughs> um, yes. Why would we do that? Right. Humans are disgusting. We are. Um, <laughs> yeah, I live. I live in a city that boasts a fine collection of shrunken heads. Right. Um, like we love collecting. We do nonsense. Yeah. Um, but yet, yeah, I have still visited museums to see these things. Like, right. I look at them. I'm implicit in this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am too. I mean, but then it's different. Like, it's more complicated. It's like, it's less of a moral issue to go to the Hunterian Museum, for example. Yeah, than to make a mermaid and try and flog it. it. (laughs) Yes. um, 
That's true. <laughs> That's true. If you're if you're taking your most generous interpretation, um, maybe it's just the kind of hum- the human desire to be like, what's there? What's there? What's there? What right. is it? What's at the bottom of the sea? What's on the moon? If I don't know, I'm going to make right, it to up. Right, to explore the unknown. It's because yeah. it's a whole like universe under the sea. Yes, and even if you can't physically get there, to yeah. just kind of have a guess. Right. Maybe that's generous of me. Well, I mean, also we're we're made of water. Like we're 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 part of water. Like water yes. is part of the human story. Yes. Um, and we started this as, as fish. You know, fish. So yeah. there's all sorts I, um, of ways. I recently visited. Um, I think it's called the National Museum of Ulster. Anyway, um, a museum in Northern Ireland. And they had a brilliant um, history exhibition, which was the complete history of Northern Ireland, complete from first human setting foot on it and it was great so interesting um humans are not a species that is native to ireland this should seem obvious uh if you think about it but i'd never thought about it i'd sort of (laughs) vaguely assumed even though i know it's not true i just sort of think that humans just sort of pop like come into existence everywhere well of course that didn't happen um so yeah basically some incredibly like visionary early humans standing on the coast of Wales and Scotland in 10,000 BC can see a mountain on the horizon, and so they just go, mm, "Reckon I'm going to go and have a look." Yeah, right. That's just a see what's fantastically there. exciting and terrifying decision. Like I'm just in gonna, a coracle. I just reckon. I reckon <laughs> yeah. there's going to be a place over there. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it'll be fine, right? I'll just leave all my family and everything I know and everyone I know, and I'll just yeah, just paddle over. Right. I've I mean, seen a cool mountain. Well, I Amazing. Mean, that's something that humans consistently have done. Like, yeah. you know, our capacity to explore is kind of awe-inspiring and also kind of. Not very intelligent. Yes, like so, both, so both also our capacity to come and royally mess something up, right, which exactly. as soon as we introduced agriculture to Ireland, we did. Like we basically, yeah. back in ten thousand whatever, had a paradise teeming with food. Then we started farming and we just wrecked the land um, <laughs> and, and managed to managed to ruin the soil. Even basically just using a stone to do our agriculture with, we still managed to do that. So well done, humans. Yeah, we. We're really good at messing things yeah, up. We've we're done it awesome for at it. centuries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So another thing that I've been thinking about loads over the last couple of years, particularly in the run-up to and since Brexit, is immigration. And that offers a bit of a perspective on that as well. Right. Like, we, you know, and in England, you know, the, the UK is all like that. Yeah. We, we're all none of us. Like, none of us used to be a UK fish before we evolved. Right. This is ludicrous. The the history of humanity is the history of migration. Yes. We are all migrants, is it true? Yes. Like, it's it's also kind of, it could be said too much in the, like, when we say, like, we're all migrants, it kind of makes out like we're all supporting migrants but we're not so you yeah. know you have to be kind of careful that you don't go around going we're all migrants we all began in africa but then doing nothing to yeah yeah, yeah and then taking literally them. no action whatsoever yeah. but i mean it's it's absolutely true 
Yeah. And uh, like, I wish more humans would be aware of that. Um, Oxford actually has, I don't know if this is my perspective and the people that I know and speak to, I think Oxford has an above average number of brilliant programmes explicitly welcoming the refugee community in particular and asylum seekers and quite a history of that and I've been to welcome events and stuff so that's been a positive of the last couple of years I worry that I am protected from yeah like basically post-Brexit horror by living where I do well everybody's in bubbles anyway right we've got social media bubbles but we've also got like real world bubbles whereby you can like only know the great people in your area or the great things that are happening in your area and you're not you don't know about the other things but I mean it's it's good that there's all of those programs existing and it's good that that's that's happening yeah and it's you know it's it's interesting that even when we're talking about mermaids we can we're also talking about migration we're also talking about human 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 existence and like like finding a way to co-live with each other yes um what i was particularly interested in um the first time i did mermaids as a show which sadly is also an issue that people are awful about at the moment um is uh what it takes to make a woman yeah, like I, I think that um, mermaids are such an obvious uh, trans narrative. Right, that's very um, true. To think about issues and um, myself as a cis woman, what gives me that identity? What part of me is it? Because I do absolutely not think that it is my genitals that make me a woman. Right. Um, and mermaids are such an interesting way. Right, because they don't. Because I mean, they don't. Don't have genitals. Because mermaids don't have genitals. Um, but no one's ever questioned whether a mermaid with boobs is a woman. Right, very um, true, very true. The last time I was looking at mermaids, it was particularly mermaids and motherhood, um, because I reckon, I've got a theory about mermaids, mermaids crave giving birth to live young, because they've got mammaries. Right. They want to feed, they want that relationship. They could produce milk, but they don't because the bottom half of them is fish and fish don't reproduce like that. Um, fish don't really know which of the fry is theirs, right. which one came out of their egg because they lay their eggs and then they leave them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they can identify a young baby of their group, of their community, but they cannot know whether or not it's particularly theirs. And unlike actual fish, they crave it because they are a thing of two halves. Right. So, yeah, that was particularly why I was interested in mermaids and fertility and as a metaphor for what what you what what I want as well. I've been sort of like thinking very vaguely about children. This, isn't, this is no kind of secret. I'm a 32-year-old woman. It's occurred to me. And I've been thinking, of course, about adoption because adoption is an incredibly sensible right. way to have children and yet I don't want to like that's all that feels awful I don't think it's awful to not want to adopt people like, no but it no but it's awful like I don't I don't know um I I have not have not tried to have children and I'm not currently trying to have children and it's not a decision that I've that I'm kind of done with but it was something that I thought about and my husband jokingly said I don't know, was he joking? Uh, my husband was at that time working as a personal injury lawyer, which he hated a lot. Um, and a lot of the stories that he dealt he was in medical negligence, and a lot of the stories that he dealt with were birth complications. And he one day, like, slightly tongue-in-cheek, said, I really feel like it, it's safer to just adopt. 
You know, well, I mean, it, it is. It's true. Literally true. That's literally true because <laughs> childbirth is a risky business, and also, it's clearly a good idea. I mean, definitely. I'm not. You know, absolutely. There's lots of people but, who need to be adopted. Who, yeah, like, that's great. I mean, I don't. You know, I, I we don't want children like either adopted or or, mm. or not adopted. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's. A, I mean, that's the thing so, that I keep coming back to. I want not adopted children. If you want children, then yes. you, you probably want the kind of thing that people want when they have children, yes. which is like that connection. I think that's what, I was, as you said, it is, it is what most people want. It is what most people want. I think that's why I was so... In, and it is what I want. I think I was so interested in that because I kind of consider that to be a bit irrational as a desire of mine. Right. But then maybe... Because like, they're, still, they're still yours. Yeah, but I mean, what's what's? I don't know if there's anything particularly rational about the desire to have yeah, children. That's true. It's a, an instinctual thing that goes back. Like often, people want to have children at very inappropriate times, and in very, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't really work out like that. People, yeah, maybe it's just not a rational impulse at all. I feel sure. it's, it, it is. It's more like <laughs> it's, it's more like a sort of like leap of faith than yes. any kind of rational thing. You have to like just go. I want this. I'll do it. it yeah. It's going to change your life. It may be good, it may be bad. Yeah. You'll, you'll rationalise it later, I think, as so, most parents do. I'm so risk-averse <laughs> in my life. I'm such a put-a-toe-in kind of person. Right, and you can't do that you with children. You can't, it's binary. It's You've got them or you haven't. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, you have to go into the decision wholeheartedly, and I like to not go into the decisions wholeheartedly. I like to do a little trial run right. and see if this is going to fly right. <laughs> before, I, before I make decisions. Um, but gonna have to get used to that absolutely i mean this has been it's been a real pleasure getting uh even better acquainted with you i mean i i i i could talk to you forever um and i think we're both talkers so we can probably both both talkers but we probably shouldn't do that you have other things to do today the last question that i ask everybody is do you have anything to plug which i guess we've we've covered but you should do it all again um my book one more chance is um out now on trade paperback uh, digital and also it's coming out this month on audio particular interest for podcast fans one more chance by me lucy Ayrton, and i would also like to plug all of the other um all my other stable mates at dialogue books it's our launch day today um it's such a cool imprint we haven't talked about it it's an inclusive imprint um, yeah, you can talk about it's awesome. Now. Maybe I should talk about it now. Um, <laughs> um, so, Dialogue is um, an, a new imprint as part of Little Brown, which was set up explicitly to be inclusive as an imprint and to address um, the very, uh, I guess, one-sided nature of the publishing industry. Yep. In the UK, um, so it's explicitly interested in books that uh, examine issues around race, class, gender, um, sexuality, disability. Uh, it's not tied by a genre, which I think is great because it's purely like picked on quality and the books can be any genre and they can be by anyone. All of the other books are absolutely amazing. I have not read them yet, but I am receiving proof copies today, which I am super excited about. Um, but yeah, I commend you to go over to one of their social media um, or to look them up um, because they've got some cool stuff. Or if you can't be bothered to do that, you could just buy my book. Yeah, I mean, you should definitely buy Lucy's book. Like, yeah. That's definite. But like, also check out <laughs> everybody on Dialogue Books, yeah. which is also a good thing to do. And also check out Lucy on the Family Tree with a lot of other uh, amazing voices as well. Uh, you can find the Family Tree on the Family Tree 
podcast.co.uk or anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet you can find it there Uh, brilliant thanks so much brilliant the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience goodbye audience thank you for listening bye everyone if you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people if you go to the unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find mansplaining masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding company which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books they can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering you can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk if you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad as well as making getting better acquainted i also co-produce and i guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can find getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can find it on facebook at getting better acquainted and you can find it anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet and if you want to email me personally that's gba podcast at gmail.com or i'm goosefat 101 on twitter and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted <laughs>